Section 36 of Antonia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Antonia by George Sand, translated by George Burnham Ives. Section 36. Despite the anxiety which Julian's absence caused her, and her longing to send Marcel after him, Madame Thierry felt called upon to invite Monsieur Antoine to supper. Oh, said he, I sup on a hard crust of bread and a glass of cheap wine. That is my habit. I have never cared much about eating. She gave him what he asked for, and Marcel hastened their departure. I am sure that Julian is at my house waiting for me, he said to his aunt. He must be impatient because I do not return. But my wife is there, and she will keep him quiet. Juliet will chatter to him, and if he should be sicker, you may be sure that he is well taken care of. Julian was frantically impatient in very truth, despite the attentions which Madame Marcel lavished upon him. He had felt exceedingly weak when he arrived. He had tried to eat a little, and to divert his thoughts with his godson's pretty prattle. But, as Marcel did not appear, when he heard the clock strike eleven, he could stand it no longer. He declared that his mother would be anxious if he had not returned at midnight. He promised to take a cab to return to Severus, and started for Rue de Babylon on foot, with many detours and precautions, to avoid being watched and followed as formerly, by some agent of Monsieur Antoine. He arrived unmolested. His actions were no longer watched. Monsieur Antoine had been spying upon Julie too long, not to be sure that she no longer had any relations with Julian. At midnight, Julian, who had been at the door fifteen minutes, entered and found Julie, who also had been waiting fifteen minutes in the pavilion. At the same moment, Marcel, Monsieur Antoine, and Madame Thierry entered Paris by the Barrier de Sèvres. Monsieur Antoine's frugal supper and slow conversation had lasted a little too long to suit the widow. Being anxious about her son, she had asked for a seat in the chaise that she might join Julian at Marcel's. As the moment for his meeting with Julie drew near, Julian had summoned all his courage. He anticipated a painful explanation. He had taken an inward oath that he would be neither angry nor reproachful, nor weak, and yet, when he opened the door, his hand trembled. A giddiness born of frenzy and despair made him hesitate and recoil. But the instant that she saw him, Julie uttered a joyful cry, threw her arms about his neck, and strained him passionately to her heart. They were in the dark. They could not see how changed they both were. They felt that their kisses were burning, and it did not occur to either of them that it might be with fever. At that moment, the only fever was that fever of love which gives life. They had forgotten that which causes death. But that moment of intoxication did not long endure in Julian's case. More alarmed than exhilarated by Julie's caresses, he hastily pushed her away. 
Why do you still love me, he said, if you still intend to leave me? Oh, perhaps it won't be for long, she replied. You wrote me that this was an eternal farewell. I don't know what I wrote. I was mad. But there can be no eternal farewell. It is not possible when two people love as we do. Then you are going away, but will you return? If I can, yes. Let us not talk about that. This night is ours. Let us love. Amid the transports of love, Julian was again seized with terror. Julie unguardedly uttered excited words in which there was an indefinably ominous implication which made his blood run cold. Ah, he exclaimed abruptly, you are deceiving me. You are going away forever, or else you think that you are going to die. You were ill, I know, given up by the doctors it may be. No, I give you my word that the doctors promised to cure me. I want to see your face. I can't see you here. Let us go out. I am afraid. It seems to me at times that I am dreaming and that it is your ghost that I hold in my arms. He led her into the garden where it was almost as dark as in the pavilion. I can't see you, mon dieu. I can't see your face, said Julian anxiously. I can feel that your arms are thinner, that your waist is smaller. You seem to have become so light that your feet do not touch the gravel. Tell me, are you a dream? Am I here by your side in this garden where we have been so happy? I am afraid I am mad. They drew near to the basin. There, as the moonless sky was without a cloud and was reflected in the water with all its stars, Julian saw that Madame de Strel was pale, and the whiteness of the water, reflected on her face, made her appear even more ghastly than she was. He could tell that her face had grown thin by the increased size of her eyes, which shone brightly in the darkness. I was sure of it, he cried. You are dying, and that is why you sent for me. Very good, Julie. I will not leave you again if I am to lose you. I propose to receive your last breath and then die myself. No, Julian, you cannot die. Think of your mother. Why, my mother will die with us. What do you expect me to say to you? She would have liked to die on the day she lost my father. She said so unconsciously in her first frenzy, and since then, I have fully realized that she has lived only for me. We will all three go together, since we have but one soul between us, and we will go to a world where the purest love will not be a crime. There must be such a world for those who have never been able to understand the wicked prejudices of this one. Let us die, Julie, without remorse or vain regret. Give me your breath. Give me your fever. Give me your sickness. I swear that I will not survive you. Alas, said Julie, unable to restrain that outcry of nature. I might have been cured. What do you mean, cried Julian beside himself. Have you taken poison? Answer, tell me. I insist upon knowing. No, no, I have not, she replied, dragging him away with a sudden desperate movement, which made a profound impression on him. 
She had been leaning over the water. She had seen therein the reflection of her face in her white dress. She had remembered that an hour later. She must be lying there motionless, dead. She had sworn it. That was the price of her broken oath. That was the price of Julian's happiness. A ghastly fear of death had made her shudder and start back. What are you afraid of, he asked her. What did you see in the water? What were you thinking about? What made you fly? Ah, I can guess. You intend to die soon, immediately, as soon as I have gone. But I say that it shall not be. You are my wife. Since you still love me, you belong to me. I don't know what oath you have taken. I don't know what constraint has been put upon you. But I, your lover, your husband, your master, release you from everything. I will carry you off by force. No, I will take you with me. That is my right. I do not propose that you shall die. And I propose that my mother shall live to bless you. I have strength for us both. I don't know what sort of battle I shall have to fight, but I will fight it. Come, let us go. If you haven't strength to walk, I have strength to carry you. Come, I insist. The time has come for you to acknowledge no other power over your life than mine. As, while leading her back to the pavilion, he led her in the direction of the basin, the combat between remorse and love in her heart became so violent that she uttered a cry of horror, and clinging to him with all her strength, she said, I pledged my word of honor to leave you, and I am breaking my pledge and reducing your mother to want. Can you relieve me from that burden? You are mad, said Julian. Was my mother so very poor when you first knew her? Will my right arm be cut off to keep me from working? Very well. Then I will work with my left arm. Ah, I understand everything now. This is the revenge threatened by Monsieur Antoine. I ought to have guessed sooner why our father's house was given back to us. Poor Julie, you are sacrificing yourself for us. But that is all null and void. I have not consented. I have accepted nothing. I submitted, knowing nothing about it. Come, do not tremble any more. I release you from your promise, and woe to the man who dares to remind you of it. If you hesitate, if you shrink from anything, I shall believe that wealth is what you regret, and that you have less courage and love than I. Ah, that is the suspicion I dreaded so, said Julie. Let us go, let us go, but where shall we go? How shall I dare appear before your mother and say, I bring you sorrow and ruin? Julie, you doubt my mother. You no longer love us. Let us go, she repeated. Let us go to her and let her decide my fate. Take me, take me away from here. Julie was completely crushed by such a multitude of emotions. Her strength failed her, and Julian, as he caught her in his arms, saw that she had fainted. It was impossible to do anything for her in the pavilion. So he carried her to her apartment, the garden door being open and the room lighted. He deposited Julie on a sofa, and she speedily recovered consciousness, 
but when she attempted to rise, she fell back. Ah, my dear, she said, I cannot stand. Am I going to die here? Is it too late for you to save me? Hark, someone is knocking on the street door, I think. No, said Julian, who had heard nothing. But as he strove to restore her confidence while his own was beginning to disappear, they were startled by a loud peal at the bell. They are coming after me to carry me away, perhaps, said Julie wildly, to put me in a convent. The Marchioness, Monsieur Antoine, I don't know who, and I cannot fly. Take me away. Hide me, Julian. Wait, wait, said Julian, who had opened an inner door and was listening. It is Marcel calling Camille. Yes, it is some urgent matter. Admit him yourself. I cannot, said Julie in despair after one last effort. Very well, I will go, said Julian resolutely. He must see me here in any event, as I do not propose to leave this house without you. He hurried to the door of the vestibule, where Marcel was ringing as if he would pull the house down, and before any servant had time to rise and find out what the matter was, Julian opened the door to Marcel and Madame Thierry. He admitted them and locked the doors behind them. Ah, my child, cried Madame Thierry, I was very sure that I should find you here. Victory, Julian, my poor Julian. Ah, I don't know what I am saying. You will be cured at once. We bring you happiness. When Julie learned what had happened at Severus, life returned to her as it returns to a half-dead plant when the rain falls upon it. Her tense nerves were relaxed by tears of joy. As for Julian, who was almost dangerously ill the day before, he was cured like those paralytics whom a beneficent thunderclap causes to walk and leap about. After an hour passed in an outpouring of emotion, which seemed inexhaustible, Marcel took Madame Thierry home with him to obtain a little rest and entrusted Julie to the care of Camille who undertook to keep the servants quiet concerning that nocturnal visit. Julian had already made his escape through the pavilion. Julie slept as she had not slept for a long while. Luckily, as we have said, Monsieur Antoine no longer kept spies about the Hotel d'Estrel. And luckily, too, the servants were discreet and devoted to their mistress. For if the rich man had learned of that interview, he might have been made dangerously angry and have changed his mind. He had expressed a desire to inform Madame de Strel of her pardon with his own lips, but he was too tired. Relaxed, satisfied, proud of himself, he slept soundly and rose a quarter of an hour later than usual. He was no sooner on his feet than he redoubled his ordinary activity and put his whole household in deadly fear for he was sharp to command, quick to threaten, and even quicker to raise his hand, armed with a cane, against the sluggish. The old Hotel de Melzi was thrown open, swept and put in order in the twinkling of an eye. Messengers were dispatched in all directions, and at noon a sumptuous dinner was served. The guests, assembled in the large gilded salon, anticipated some mysterious event. Marcel brought Madame Thierry and Madame d'Estrel, whom he had invited in the master's behalf. 
Julian, too, had been notified and arrived in due season. Julie was received by Madame de Court, Madame de Smorge, her daughter, and her son-in-law. The Duc de Quesnoy had not returned, but Abbe de Nevres was there, determined to eat for two. Madame la Presidente did not keep them waiting, and Marcel was commissioned to present the ladies a collection of botanists, learned professors and collectors, whom Monsieur Antoine was wont to convoke on great occasions. "'It is enough to make one die laughing,' said the Baroness to Julie, leading her unto a window recess. "'The good man sent a messenger to me at six o'clock this morning.' to invite me to witness the christening of a rare plant which is to bear his name. You can imagine what a pleasant awakening it was. I was furious, but I discovered in a postscript that you were to attend the ceremony, and I decided that I would come. So you are reconciled to your old neighbor, are you, my dear? Well, so much the better. You have followed my advice, and you will come to it at last, I tell you. The gardener isn't attractive, but five millions. Remember that. Julie's other friends thought differently. They supposed that Antoine had made an amicable arrangement with her, which was satisfactory to them both, and that they ought to accept this invitation in order to do this friend a service. They questioned Julie with that theory in mind, and Julie did not undeceive them. As for the professors... The ostentatious christening of a new plant did not seem particularly absurd to them. Monsieur Thierry had enriched horticulture with several interesting specimens. He had fostered the acclimatization of useful trees, and his name well deserved a figure in the annals of science. A good dinner on such an occasion does no harm, and the presence of a number of attractive women is not absolutely inconsistent with the solemn preoccupations of botany. End of section 36